0: What we're really going to begin to do is look at um, the doctrine of biblical anthropology, and um, included in that is the fall of man and what he is like, his depravity, and a number of other things. And what I'm really trying to do this morning is to just really introduce things. and uh, try to follow up where Eric has asked me, going along with uh, the statement that we read this morning. And uh, I'll quote that here in a minute. But let's uh, begin this uh, time of study with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we uh, come before you uh, seeking help from you to uh, open our minds and hearts to understand uh, the Scriptures, Lord to understand um, who we are uh, in the light of who you are, and that you will give us a better understanding of ourselves, our purposes, our goals, our priorities in this life, Lord. And help me in this affair. And I ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Quoting our doctrinal statement, it says, "...we believe that man was created in holiness under the law of his Maker, but by voluntary transgression fell from that holy and happy state, in consequence of which all mankind are now sinners, not by constraint but choice, being by nature utterly void of that holiness required by the law of God." Positively inclined to evil and therefore under just condemnation to eternal ruin without defense or excuse. And just to let you know, I'm really just focusing on the first part of this statement uh, we're going to look at today. um, And that is, we believe that man was created in holiness. And we're going to look at why he was created, and what image he was made in, and what ultimately is our goal now, even as fallen men and women. And I think in... Uh, broader evangelicalism, this doctrine of anthropology, the study of man, based on the Bible and what God has revealed, is quite ignored. And the reason for this is there's this very much, there's this great desire to be man-centered. Many worship songs, if you look at them carefully, read their lyrics, they're actually man-centered, preaching centers on man. And people rarely contemplate why they do the things that they do and why they live and worship in church a certain way, why they think a certain way. Uh, And when we don't think deeply about who we are, in the light of the scriptures before God, we're always going to be those that live a superficial fleshly life the, on that level. David said in Psalm 8:4, What is man that you, speaking of God, are mindful of him, and the Son of man that you care for him? That really is the question that is set before us in this: is what is man? And so we're studying anthropology. Anthropos, the Greek term there, means humanity or man, mankind. And so the logos there at the end is the idea of the study of. So it's the study of mankind or humankind in the light of Scripture. And how we see ourselves makes all the difference in the world. Um, Many approaches, there are many approaches to anthropology that exclude God from the discussion. Therefore, at the most fundamental and basic level, they fail to understand who man really is, what they really are. But for the believer, the only way to properly study this subject is from a God-centered perspective, a biblical perspective. I've mentioned a number of times that I teach a class at uh, the school where I teach. I teach the seniors in a class called Understanding the Times. And in that class, we look at major worldviews. And there's six of them, including Christianity, that uh, we see functioning in our society today. And what we do is we take those different worldviews, we compare them to the biblical worldview. And each one of them has a different take on how it looks, how they view mankind, how they view themselves. Secularism asserts that there is no God and that the universe is only material. Man is just a cosmic accident. He has randomly evolved from lower life forms with no intentional design. And since man is here by chance, nothing he does has real value or eternal significance. He is just a higher form of animal. Marxism stresses that man is primarily an economic being driven by material needs. It says that history is this progression of man from slavery to feudalism to capitalism and then to the highest economic system that there is, according to Marxism, which is communism. And in that state of communism, there is no private property and we will all work for the benefit of each other sharing all things. You have postmodernism, that tells us that mankind is a product of his environment. That there are mental constructs and they are meaningful only to the people within certain cultures. They outright reject meta-narratives or grand stories that help people understand their place in the big picture. New spirituality, which is the study of Eastern religions such as Hinduism and Buddhism. They claim that man's destiny is a spiritual union with an impersonal force of the universe. That man is to be lost like a drop of water in the ocean. The goal is to become one with this higher consciousness so that you can stop the cycle of reincarnation and simply cease to exist as a person. That's a great goal to have. (laughs) And you listen to some of these guys, and we listen to some of these guys, like Deepak Chopra. If you've ever heard Deepak Chopra talk, he talks a long time and he says absolutely nothing. <laughs> so the goal is no more feelings, no more personhood, no more desires. That's the goal. We have people like Sigmund Freud who assert that man is primarily a sexual being, and his behavior stems from sexual motivation. And all of these views have something in common. They're all wrong. They're all wrong. And the reason they're wrong is not because Jonathan Hamilton says that they're wrong. It's because they go against what the Bible says about mankind. The Scriptures tell us that we were created by a personal God who designed man with dignity and purpose to serve Him. So we start in the beginning. We start with Adam, a real person created by God on the sixth day in Genesis chapter 1. And so we want to first ask the question, my first point is, why was man created? Why did God decide to create man, humanity? We have studied the perfections of God, and I have talked about aseity and what that means, which means that God is self-existent. He is completely independent. We learn that God is in need of nothing from us or the creation. So look at Romans chapter 11 where I ask you to turn. We're going to look at verses 33 to 36. Romans 11, verses 33 to 36, and I'm reading out of the legacy standard. All the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and unfathomable His ways! For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who became His counselor? Or who has first given to Him that it might be repaid to Him? For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be the glory forever. Who has given to God? Who knows the mind of God? Who's been His counselor? No one, for He needs nothing. All things are created by Him. All things are sustained by Him. And all things were created for Him, for His glory. That is the reason for your and my existence is to glorify God. This fact guarantees that our lives are significant. They have worth and they have meaning. And we glorify God by enjoying Him, taking delight in our relationship with Him. It says in John 10, 10, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Satan and his minions would love to destroy the sheep, but Jesus rescues his sheep. He gives them life, and the word life there in John 10, 10 means spiritual, eternal life. And he gives it in uh, abundance, in full measure. This eternal life is not just length of time, but a life of unimaginable quality. It is life to the fullest. It is a life that goes way beyond necessity. John wants his readers to know that the gift of Jesus is beyond our wildest dreams. And that abundant life will be realized in heaven, but I want you to understand that that starts at the moment of your conversion. Mm -hmm. That abundant life is is beginning now. David tells us in Psalm 1611, You will make known to me the path of life In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand, there are pleasures forever. By fullness of joy, joy, we're talking about satiation, which means being filled with excess, unable to take on more. Only God can bring this type of fullness of joy. And that is found in knowing God and delighting in who He is and His character. Enjoying fellowship with God is a greater blessing than anything that we can imagine. What it contributes to our life now and what it will be like then when we are unhindered in our worship of Him. Psalm eighty-four, verses one and two. How lovely are your dwelling places? Turn there. Psalm eighty-four, verses one and two. We look at a few verses here. Sometimes I think, I'll just speak for me personally, read the Psalms, and we hear the longing of the heart, and we're like, my, I really want that. I really really want to to long to be with God like that, to know God like that. And I think that's where it starts, is a great desire uh, that is placed in your heart, at your conversion to know the living God and to know your Savior. says in Psalm 84, verses 1 and 2, How lovely are your dwelling places, O Yahweh of hosts! My soul has longed and even fainted for the courts of Yahweh. My heart and my flesh sing for joy to the living God. Skip down to verse 10. For better is a day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. This is to be the normal heart attitude of a Christian, the desire for the Lord, to be in fellowship with Him, to rejoice in the Lord, and also to rejoice in the lessons that God brings to us. I don't know about you but I need to be reminded of that one often that even the difficulty in life is God working in us to bring something about in us that's better than ourselves making us ultimately more like Christ Mm -hmm. turn to Romans chapter 5 look at verses 1 through 5 there we're to rejoice in the Lord have a desire for the Lord Take joy in Him, but we're also in a way to take joy in our afflictions and difficulties. Romans 5, verses 1-5, through 5, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we boast in hope of the glory of God. And not only this, but we also boast in our afflictions, knowing that afflictions bring about perseverance and perseverance, proven character and proven character, hope and hope does not put to shame because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Paul says that we should boast or rejoice in our afflictions. Some commentators will narrow this down just to make it about being persecuted for Christ's sake, but I don't see it that way. Since all of life for the believer is sacred, therefore all the trials, tribulations, afflictions also have a sacred work in the believer's life. Now, we don't necessarily become happy over our difficulties in our lives, but the idea is that it is a comforting fact to know that God is working for our benefit and for His glory. And we can have joy and can praise God even in those difficult circumstances because He is ultimately working for our good. 1 Thessalonians 5:16 through 18. It says rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks for this is the will for you and with the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. This is the will of God. What's the will of God here? It's not just giving thanks in everything, but it's also praying without ceasing and always rejoicing. These are to be normal heart attitudes of a believer. Do we always do these things as we should? No, we don't. But that should and must be the pattern of our heart attitude, not the exception. And as we enjoy and glorify God, even in our affliction and tribulation, He rejoices in us. I think this is an incredible thing. Look at Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 17. And that's there between the major and minor <laughs> prophets when the young people have to turn to something like this, it becomes a challenge. It's a lot of going to the index to find out where that's at. Zephaniah chapter 3. Zephaniah chapter 3 verse 17. It says there, Yahweh, your God, is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will be joyful over you with gladness. He will be quiet in his love. He will rejoice over you with joyful singing. Listen, my friends, when we realize that God created us to glorify Him and we start acting in ways that fulfill that, then we begin to experience an intensity of joy in the Lord that we have never known before. When we also understand that God rejoices over us in our fellowship with Him, our joy becomes inexpressible and full of glory. And that does take work. Yes, joy is a gift, but you're striving for that as well. And the more you know the living God, the more you read about Him, the more you're becoming like Christ, the more that joy grows in your heart and life. So we are created for His glory, but we were also created in His image. What what image was man created in? In the Scriptures, we learned that man is the only creature made in the image of God. In some way, man is like God and represents God. Now, if you read on this subject, you're going to find a variety of different ideas of what it means to be created in the image of God. And there are three main views. There's the substantive view that holds that there are qualities in man that are similar to God, such as reason and spirituality. There's the relational view. This has to do with interpersonal relationships, relationship with God, with Himself, the Godhead and the Trinity. And therefore, man reflects this and being in relationship with others and in relationship with God. And the third one is a functional view. It has to do with the the functions that man carries out, such as dominion over the creation. So let's begin to look at what it means to be created in the image of God. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26 Genesis 1-26. It says there, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, so that they will have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God is making a creature similar to Himself, but not exactly like Himself. And we know this because we have some understanding of the perfections or attributes of God, such as He is eternal, He is the creator of time, space, and matter. I don't know of anyone that can do that. He is everywhere present. He is unchanging, all-powerful, just to name a few. We also know that we're not exactly like Him um, because we know what we are. Mm. We can see what He is, but we know that we fall far short of this God that is revealed to us in the Scriptures. And we also know that we are just similar because of the wording in the verse. Both the words image and likeness in Genesis 1.26 refer to something that is similar but not identical. Also, the word image can be used as a representative of something else. So the original audience would have simply understood Genesis one twenty six as, let us make man to be like us and to represent us. The verse goes on to say, so that they will have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the sky, over the cattle, over the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. The latter part of the verse would seem to favor the functional view that the way in which man is created in the image and likeness of God is how He shows dominion over the earth. But I think it goes farther than that. And it does take in the functional view, but there's more to it than just having dominion over the earth as a representative of God. In fact, as we read the rest of Scripture, we realize that we need a better understanding of what man is like and a better understanding of who God is to properly answer the question, how is man created in the image of God? And so the more that we know about God and man from the Scriptures, the more similarities we will begin to recognize, and also the gap that's between us and God, and the more fully we will understand what it means when it says that man is created in the image of God. The expression, image of God, refers to every way in which man is like God. So I believe that there is truth in each of these three views, but I also believe that the perverted view is the substantive view. Because function and relationship, which are the two other views, are, are the consequences of being created in the image of God structurally. This view acknowledges the importance of function and relationship, yet there is this structure that is the basis for accomplishing certain functions and relationship. Since man is the image of God, he is able to exercise dominion and experience relationships. According to Genesis 1:26 to 28, man is made in God's image, and then he is tasked with ruling and subduing the earth and being in relationships. And those two come out of the structure in which God created man. So what is this structure that makes man the image of God? And I believe we can look at some categories to better understand this that will help us understand what it means to be created in the image of God. First, man is, and I stole these. So first, man is in the image of God ontologically. This has to do with our existence, our being, what we are. Man is an image-bearer of God in the sense that man is a living, personal, self-conscious, active being with personality. A cursory reading of the Scripture will tell you that this will break down rather quickly when we begin to compare ourselves to God. We are complex, we are made of parts, we have material and immaterial parts, but God is a simple being, meaning that He completely He contains no parts. He is unity. He is spirit, invisible, eternal. Now God has granted man a spirit, but He's also given us a physical body, which God does not have. He could have created us as spirits on the earth. So there's similarities between God and man ontologically. Not only that, but volitionally. Man has a will and the ability to select between different choices. He is able to discern right from wrong. This volitional aspect is what separates man from the animals. Man is able to reason. Animals function on instinct given to them by God. In our world today, most want to ascribe some sort of high intelligence to animals. We think that because a monkey can take a stick and use it as a tool that that's somehow evolution. And they will tell you that that's a sign of high intelligence and reasoning skills. But you will never see monkeys sitting around a table discussing the workings of the Trinity. (laughs) They don't design combustion engines. The simple fact is that there is such a gap between humanity and the animals that the similarities quickly dissolve away as meaningless in the light of the gap. So we are created in the image of God to some degree, some degree ontologically, volitionally, and also intelligently, with intellect. Man is like God intellectually. He has a rational mind. He is self aware. He's aware of his environment and others and God. He can think critically and logically, at least some of us can. He possesses memory, imagination, creativity for communication and understanding the thoughts of other people. And once again, obviously there's a gap between God's intelligence and man's intelligence and it is an infinite gap, but nonetheless, He has created us with intelligence to represent Him. So not only are we like God ontologically, volitionally, intellectually, but also emotionally Humans can experience a wide range of emotions and feelings, such as anger, guilt, anxiety, regret, shame, happiness, and joy. Now, obviously, many of our emotions and feelings can be wrong and they can be misinformed. But we read in the Bible that God has righteous anger. We see God, the Holy Spirit, being grieved. Uh, We hear of His joy and His delight. Emotionally, humans are complex. As people, we can experience two or more emotions at the same time. Now, my oldest daughter has decided that she wants to step out from the house and volunteer at the school that I work at as a teacher's assistant for a few days a week. And for my wife, there was a wide range of emotions there. There's sadness that she's getting older and she might be moving away into her own life. There's also nervousness there about how she's going to do. There's also happiness. There's also a pride of her stepping out and volunteering. Once again, though, God's emotions are always right. They're never out of control. They're appropriate for each and every situation. Nonetheless, man is an image-bearer emotionally. Also, man is an image-bearer rationally. Man is made, well, relationally, excuse me. Man is made for relationships. Relationships with God and relationships with other people. The greatest commandment, Jesus said, was to love God. And the second commandment is to love others. Now, I am an introvert at heart. And a lot of times I tell people that and they're kind of taken back because everything I seem to do involves being around people. (laughs) Uh, But being an introvert doesn't mean that you dislike people. It does mean, though, that you can be comfortable being alone. And that you need time to step back and recharge so you can be with people again. An extrovert is charged and invigorated by being around people. That's what fires them up and moves them forward. But for the introvert, he or she needs the time away to recharge and then come back and be involved. That's part of my personality. But if I was to isolate myself for long periods of time, that is ultimately to my detriment. Because even as an introvert, I am built for relationships. I need relationships. Since I was a very young kid, I've always had this dream that I wanted to own vast amounts of land and have a cabin right in the middle of it. (laughs) But if I was to actually do that, to isolate myself like that, uh, first of all, I think my wife and kids would have an issue with that. (laughs) But secondly, it would destroy me. Everything would turn inward, and I would spiral down and self-destruct. And the reason that I would do that is because I'm built for relationships. Yes relationships can be messy yes they can take work when you first get married you think you're going to live on love but a marriage takes hard work it takes dedication raising children there's no manual on that they don't give you one at the hospital it's hard work even being in a local church sometimes takes work and effort because of our bond and the relationship with one or another that we have in this fellowship, out of love, I may have to overlook some odd eschatological views. <laughs> in, our, in our meeting with Heart Cry, Eric took a shot in that one over the bow, when he was talking about pre-millennial stuff, so I thought I'd return. take a shot over the bow myself That. World was- But is that not wonderful that we can be in different places with different views and fellowship without getting all bent out of shape about that? I know Eric uh told a story about when we first got together in that cabin in Martinsville and uh how Bob and Eric were kinda going back and forth and I'm not I wasn't quite used to that. And then everybody's praying together and we just having fun together and we go ride some four wheelers for a while and we come back and it was like it was okay. It was okay to have a difference of opinion about something. I, where I come from, you turned your heretic canon on people that disagreed with you. If they weren't pre-trib, pre-meal, heretic canon. So I wasn't really used to that. And so, But that's a wonderful thing. It's such a breath of fresh air that there are hills to die on, obviously. But not all of them are. So now God has been from eternity past in perfect relationship within the Godhead, within the Trinity, with each other. And out of that relationship of love and joy, God, out of His good pleasure, created man. And in a way, man is created in the image of God relationally. And finally, man is created in the image of God functionally. As we saw in Genesis 1.26, He was created in the image of God to rule and to subdue the earth on behalf of God for His glory. The way that we go forward and do our jobs and the tasks and ministries that has been given to us to do, we are reflecting and representing God. On that job, in that ministry, you're representing God. We do that in how we carry out our daily activities. We do that in our attitude towards our daily activities. So these are ways in which man is created in God's image. But man is not God. And as I've said before, the gap between man and God is a massive, infinite gap. But to some degree, man reflects the likeness of God and represents God. Now man did this much better Prior to the fall. But now because of the fall, the image has been distorted, but it hasn't been lost. Can man still be like God and represent God after he has sinned in the garden and brought about the fall? The question is answered quite quickly in the book of Genesis. In Genesis 9, 6, God gives Noah the authority to establish the death penalty for murder. He says, Whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed for God made man in His own image. We see here that even though mankind is sinful and he may murder one another, so obviously we're in the fall here, there is still enough likeness to God remaining in him that murdering another person is to attack the part of creation that most resembles God. It is almost as if a person, which they can't do, is trying to attack God. It says in James three nine that people in general, not just believers, are made in the likeness of God. But now since man has sinned, he is certainly not as much like God as he was before. His moral purity has been lost. His sinful character certainly does not reflect God's holiness. His intellect is corrupt. His thinking is now twisted. His speech no longer continually glorifies God. Mankind's relationships are now inward focused. Ecclesiastes 7, nine says that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. So even though it is true of all of us that we have gone our own way and turned aside, we are still nonetheless in His image after the fall. So looking at ourselves today, the image of God is distorted. It's smudged. We don't reflect it really well. We do not represent Him well. So to get a clear picture of what the image of God in man is to look like, we don't look to ourselves or even the best of us that may seem to have it all together. We look to Jesus Christ, who is God in flesh. We see the image of God in the earth life of Jesus Christ. We see moral purity, perfect holiness, perfect humility, and we are to read about Him. We are to study Him. This sort of overlaps with what Eric was talking about. We pattern our lives after Him, seeking to be like Him but also understanding that there will be a time when through Christ we will one day have back the full measure of the image of God that was intended before the fall. And that is when we are glorified. Not only that, but right now in this fallen state through our conversion, we can progressively recover some of that image that has been lost. Through the redemption of Christ, there is this ongoing progressive recovering of the image of God in man. Now once again, I want to make myself clear uh, that the difference between Adam and his creator before the fall was vast and infinite. But he still did represent God to the fullest extent that a man could at that time. And obviously, Adam is not the one that we pattern our lives after because he ultimately failed and brought sin upon everyone. We're to pattern our lives after the perfect and holy Son of God, Jesus Christ. And by redemption, by coming to Him, by repentance and faith, there begins this progressive work of recovering what was lost at the fall. So what is the goal of fallen man? This answers the question, how do we glorify God? We're created to glorify God, but what does that really look like? When we look into the New Testament, we see that our redemption in Christ means that we can grow in this life. We can actually progressively move toward likeness to God. Now, we're not teaching prosperity gospel where they teach you little God theology, nor are we teaching you Mormon doctrine that says that you can achieve Godhood one day if you check off all the boxes. Even in our glorified bodies in eternal heaven, we will be more like God, but there will still be this massive infinite gap between glorified humanity and the sovereign of the universe. But nonetheless we can become more like God through Jesus Christ. Turn with me to Colossians chapter 3 verse 10. Colossians chapter 3 verse 10. Let's back up to verse 9, Colossians 3, 9. Do not lie to one another since you put off the old man with its evil practices and have put on the new man who is being renewed to a full knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. So we come to Christ by grace through faith. And as we grow in our sanctification, We gain a true understanding of God, His Word, His world, and we begin to think more and more of the thoughts that God thinks Himself. That is how we are renewed in knowledge. And we become more like God in our thinking. It needs to be continually brought to our attention that we have to have the Scriptures wash over our hearts and minds every day. We need to work to memorize it. I can hold very little information before. I used to be able to stand up and rattle off stuff. It goes away now if I don't write it down. I've got cards up here in case I forget stuff, and I've got my tablet in front of me as well because it's gone. It may take more work, but it is so beneficial in us thinking after the thoughts of God. So we need to work to memorize it, to meditate on it, to mentally chew on it. There's so many other things that vie for our attention that we want to think on. What is our goal? It is to be like Christ. That is God's desire for us. That's the Holy Spirit's desire for us. That we become more and more like Christ. More like Christ in our attitudes, our actions, our speech, and in our thinking. Turn with me to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3, verses 12 through 14. Philippians 3, starting in verse 12. Not that I have already obtained it, or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brothers, I do not consider myself as having laid hold of it yet. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward calling of God in Christ Jesus. Paul has boiled the whole Christian life down to one thing, pursuing being more like Christ. Christ Christ-likeness is the goal. It is the goal of every single thing that we do in our work, in our play, in our marriages with our kids, etc. That is the Father's goal for us as well. Listen to Romans 8.29. Yeah. Because those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to become conform to the image of His Son so that He would be the firstborn among many brothers. As believers... If you do not understand your purpose in this life, it is to simply be like Christ. Be like Christ. And to do that, we need to let the Word of Christ dwell in us richly. My friends, the work of the entire Trinity is to make us more like Christ so that we will one day be like Him. It says in 1 John 3, 2, Beloved, Now we are children of God and it has not been manifested as yet what we will be. We know that when He is manifested, we will be like Him because we will see Him just as He is. We will one day be like Christ. And the next verse tells us how we will be like Him. 1 John 3.3, it says, And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. Right now we are to be fixed on holiness of life, patterning ourselves after Christ, to be a pure people, to be a pure church. But that is what we will become when we are glorified and with Christ. We will be holy. We will be righteous. Not just the inner man transformed, but glorified flesh no longer susceptible to the curse and sin any longer. We will be like Him, and the image will be restored. The amazing promise of the New Testament is that just as we have been like Adam, subject to death and sin, we will be like Christ, morally pure, never subject to death again. 1 Corinthians 15.49 And just as we have borne the image of the earthly, we also bear the image of the heavenly. The full measure of our creation in the image of God is not seen in the life of Adam who sinned, nor is it seen in our lives now, for we are imperfect but the New Testament emphasizes that God's purpose in creating man in His image was to completely, was completely realized in the person of Jesus Christ. He is the image of God, 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. He is the image of the invisible God, Colossians 1.15. In Jesus, we see human likeness to God as it was intended to be, and it should cause us to rejoice that God has predestined us to be conformed to the image of His Son. When He appears, we will be like Him. But for now, while we're here, this progressive sanctification, this gathering back some of the image of God that has been marred, does not happen apart from the work of God, the Word of God, and diligence on our part. And listen, this is an ordinary Christian life. A life of growth and progression in holiness is normal. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3.18 that we are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. We're moving from one level of Christ-likeness to another. The more one grows in their knowledge of Christ, the more He is revealed in their lives, and the more we are like Him. I want to leave you with some things to think about this morning. What is your major purpose or goal in this life? What do you really want out of life? What we spend our time, money, efforts, thinking on is really what we're about. What should be our purpose? We are to glorify God in every aspect of our life, and the main way in which we do that is becoming more like Christ. What is our goal in our marriage? Is it about me? Is it me getting what I want and what I believe I deserve? Or is it about God being glorified in me by being Christ-like in my marriage? Loving the other person more than I love myself. We're not taught that anywhere in society. What about your goals with your friends, your jobs, your use of money, kids, church relationship, time, and on and on we could go? If our goals are not centered on Christ-likeness, then they are centered on us, and that will never, ever, ever, ever bring you joy. What is the pattern of most of our days? Is it the pursuit of Christ-likeness, or is it the pursuit of self, which is sin? Another question, do you think that God has made us so that we become more happy or less happy when we grow to become more like Christ? Listen, the pursuit of self over Christ-likeness, which is sin, will not bring you joy or give you what you want. Actually, the pursuit of joy and happiness through sin and self will take away every single thing that you love and want. It will leave you empty and in despair. It is only growth in Christ's likeness that will meet your greatest needs and bring you joy. We have studied the image of God this morning. How should the understanding that all people are created in the image of God change the way you think and act towards people that are different from you? Maybe they don't believe like you do or vote like you do when your spouse or loved one or child doesn't do, act, say, or think like you think they should? Do we see them as image bearers? Do we focus on treating them as Christ would treat them? Or are we inward focused, self-focused? It isn't easy to think and to be like Christ. It is a battle. It is a fight. But... It is the highest and most joyful calling for a human being to glorify God by being more like his Savior and Lord, which is the progressive recovering of the image of God in man. And that is what we are to pursue, glorifying God by looking at who Christ is in the scriptures and imitating him following after him and how he thinks, how he acts, how he reacts, his humility, his love, all of those things. Let's close in a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for your truth and your word. I ask, Lord, that you would work in each of our hearts uh, to give us a greater desire for your word, a greater desire to pursue christ likeness in every area of our life, To clean out those thieves, those murderers that are in our closet, and destroy them with your help, with the Word's help washing over our mind and heart, and us diligently agonizing and striving to be more like Christ. Help us in these pursuits. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you. You are dismissed.